Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Security Conversations podcast. My name is Ryan Narayan and today my guest is Katie Masouris, computer security researcher, CEO of Lotus Security and one of the industry's foremost authority on bug bounty programs and vulnerability rewards issues. Today we talk about Katie's life in the industry, her work on bug bounty programs at Microsoft through HackerOne through her new company and a, a range of surrounding issues. Hope you enjoy. Katie Masouris, my friend, thank you for being the first guest on my new podcast. I just wanted to get a chance to talk to you a little bit about your life in security and I'm more particularly fascinated by career paths for people and how a career arc moves from maybe some people are into math or law and they end up in security and specifically women as well. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about growing up? You grew up in Boston or were you originally from, from Northern Mariana Islands where your mom is from? Born and raised in Boston. So I was born in Boston itself and raised in a town called Arlington, Massachusetts. But the reason I ended up there was because my mom uh, was a native Pacific Islander among the Chamorro people, which are the native people of the Mariana Islands. So think Guam and the Northern Marianas, etc. But that's where my mom was born and raised, and she got a scholarship to study biochemistry in Boston. And so that's why I ended up being born and raised there. So she was a bright woman. Did you get a chance to talk to her about her childhood? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's very unusual, you know, for a male or female, actually, because usually the only way that you would get off those islands is either enlist in the U.S. military or marry somebody in the U.S. military. So she was unusual in that she got an academic scholarship for science, um, for anything at all, but really for science. And, you know, she was this tiny four foot eleven native Micronesian person. And she was, uh, you know, she was like, in a lot of ways, you know, the, the main reason why I got into computers. She bought me my first computer when I was eight years old and told me to read the manual when she couldn't afford, you know, as a single mom, she couldn't afford to buy me more games for this Commodore 64 I had. So she was a huge influence, both in being a role model, but also buying me that first computer. And growing up in Boston, you took to math and I believe you, you studying biology or some something related to biology you took to math naturally or was that oh yeah mom I mean, no I mean I was I was uh, naturally curious and was always good at math and actually what my mom did <laughs> was she had to take all the screwdrivers out of the house because I was taking everything apart and putting it back together so I mean my natural curiosity was you know was there and taking things apart I wanted to know how things worked especially electronics and, you know, with mathematics, that was that was also natural as well. I probably got it from her. And actually, on my dad's side, my grandfather, not my biological grandfather, but the guy that my, my Greek grandma re- remarried, she married a Turkish guy, and I knew him as Grandpa Jalal. He could not speak English, and so he would teach me long division because mathematics, you know, is just all numbers. It's the language of the universe. So that's how we would communicate was long division. <laughs> And, and you went to school and did math as well. Was that was, yeah? Was when that, I when was, I went to college, choice? I studied molecular biology and mathematics. When did you know that security was a career path or or something along the lines of computer technology or engineering? Did that happen in high school? Did that happen in college? When did that? open up in your brain? Well, I was learning how to hack in high school. And that was because I was dialing into a local bulletin board system uh, in the Boston area. And it was the same BBS. It was called the Works BBS. And that's where a lot of the guys who you know as the hacker group, the Loft, were also dialing into. So I learned to hack in high school. um, But there weren't really many career paths for, you know, professional hacking. And back then, the only thing you could do with a computer science degree really was become a programmer. And I knew how to program, but I found it to be a little bit on the boring side. So I was much better at breaking into things than I was at coding, even though I did try my hand at being a professional Linux developer for about a year uh, in the late 90s. But that was, you know, way after I had sort of come full circle and left, you know, molecular biology in order to come back to computer science. And you mentioned the loft, which was kind of the precursor to at stake. Was at stake your first job? 
No, uh, my first job was working at MIT um, in the early 90s, and that was working on the Human Genome Project. Right now, that that genome center is called the Broad Institute, but way back in the early to mid-90s, it was the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, and that was where the Genome Project was was, uh, housed at MIT, and it was also the home of the very first bioinformatics group. Um, So that was my first professional job that wasn't waiting tables, for example. (laughs) And then then came the the, the switch to security with the at-stake job? It was kind of this path where I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I stayed at the Genome Center, and I took a job as a systems administrator within the Genome Center. So I basically just changed roles at the place while I was figuring myself out. And I had the opportunity to build a new sequencing center. So help design, you know, the uh, from the low level power consumption requirements all the way to, you know, how many computer systems and how much power we were going to need, how much backup and everything. So I, I helped design that network as we built the sequencing center. And then I moved over to MIT where, um, you know, proper, MIT proper, where I was the systems administrator for the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics. And that was in the, like, 97, 98 timeframe. That was also when we were putting some Mars rovers, um, you know, on Mars. So that was an inspiring time to be working at MIT. Uh, Grand total, I think I worked at MIT for about four and a half years or so of my early career. That's just fascinating to me. The entire focus on security came later, maybe in the early 2000s. The first time I met you was in, I believe, 2003 or 04. You were at Symantec at the time. Yeah, I mean, it did. It, it came earlier than that. So back at that systems administration job at MIT, back then, and only up until recently, MIT networks had no firewalls. And that was by design. You know, it was designed to be an open academic sharing environment. And so as a result, you know, we had a really, really high throughput network connectivity. You know, we were pretty much right off the backbone of the internet. And people could just put their unpatched machines, you know, from students to professors to anybody, could just put their unpatched machines on the network and get an IP address. And so we were getting hacked a lot. And so from my security focused, you know, standpoint in my career, as a systems administrator, I had to learn to defend my own network. So I started scanning my own network for vulnerabilities, responding to incidents, et cetera. And so that was in the late 90s. And then I took that, you know, to the professional, you know, doing security full time um, right around the year 2000 when I became an independent penetration tester. And that was before I joined my friends over at At Stake. Um, I joined them in late 2003. And then we were acquired by Symantec, I think, in 2004. Right. That that was around the time we met. We met at a dinner at Black Hat. Symantec had put together for the press. I was working yes. as a journalist for eWeek at the time. So that was 2004. Back back then, was yeah. there was there a, a a barrier to entry for women? Do you remember any sort of frustrations with being a woman trying to break in? You know what's funny is that, and, and I've seen this over and over again. Um, at the beginning, when I was a hands-on technical person, sure, you know, there would be some raised eyebrows if, you know, if I was the lead consultant or I was the only consultant sent to an engagement. But pretty quickly, you know, hands-on keyboard, as soon as I started working, you know, there were no questions asked. And what was interesting is that that credibility of being able to actually hack into things was useful at the beginning of my career. And what I noticed is, you know, there's this myth of a meritocracy in our industry and in lots of your industries. And, you know, people think that, well, if you perform as well as your male peers, then there should be no problem. And I think that only holds holds true at the beginning of your career, when you're actually hands-on, you know, and you're actually doing work that, that can't really be, you know, denied that is it is your work. When you get to the higher levels, that's where I see the drop-off and that's where I see the challenges really, um, you know, manifest themselves. So when you're hands-on keyboard, it's easy to prove, you know, that you know what you know. When you start trying to expand your career and get into management or some other leadership roles, that's where I feel like the ceiling starts really, you know, kind of coming down on you as, as a female or a minority. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And, and while we're talking about Black Hat and issues around women, I, I, there's something I got to ask you because it's, I'm, I've been struggling with it myself is 
I've been going to Black Hat for close to more than a decade. And you hear and you see people writing stories or telling stories about their own women, women telling stories about their own experiences at Black Hat around sexual harassment, just abuse, their stories of rapes. And I've been going there for a decade and I personally have not seen anything that would raise a red flag for me. So I'm struggling with, are you being naive? Are you just not in the right places at the wrong times? Help me understand your own experiences at Black Hat, DEF CON, which is kind of like the big ones, but it's starting to, these stories are starting to filter out from many, many more places. Help me understand your own experience if you've kind of had to struggle and deal with that one. And why we as men in the industry maybe don't see it or notice it. Are we programmed not to see these things? It's really, really a struggle for me. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll cover it briefly. Um, but one of the things that, that I, I've noticed is that just because we're women, you know, we're kind of always expected to cover this women in security or women in tech topic. And it's one of the things that I view as a tax on my time. You know what I mean? Um, but I will cover it briefly because you asked. Um, certainly, yes, I have experienced, you know, harassment, groping, all kinds of like nasty behavior at these events. But, you know, I've also experienced them just being a woman out in the world. And what um, what I think, you know, a lot of the recent, you know, sort of Me Too hashtag is really helpful helped bring, um, you know, bring to light is how pervasive it really is. And we as women, you know, one, we learn at a very young age, even prepubescent, we learn, you know, essentially to do a whole lot of risk management in real time. And that's no different, you know, at a black hat event or really any any other place where we happen to be as women. I would say that, you know, for, for myself, it's pretty much, you know, I was lucky at the beginning of my career when I first started going to DEF CON in that I was going with a crew I already knew. So I was spared a whole lot of, you know, physical, um, physical stuff or unsafe places because I already, you know, sort of was surrounded by my crew of, of friendly hackers who I knew already. Um, and I was insulated that way. But later, and actually in the last few years, um, you'd think as I get older that this would this would taper off. But actually, with the addition of marketing and salespeople who are not part of hacker culture, I've seen a whole lot more of that inappropriate behavior, especially in Vegas. I mean, I think they they go with the idea that Vegas is you know a playground, and that every woman there is somehow up for grabs, literally. And so it's been in the last few years at Black Hat that it's actually physically for me gotten worse. Right. And your your original, you know, your original experience I think applies today, which is telling young, you know, newcomers and young women coming into these coming into security or, or, or being exposed at these conferences, surround yourself with a with a comfortable circle or a comfortable network to just to try to avoid that stuff. Well, you know, it's it's hard, it's very difficult to actually identify who you can trust and who you can't. And um, we've seen that come out with some surprise predators um, of folks that we all thought we knew really well and had never, you know, to your point, um, had never observed being creepy or inappropriate. And the, the fact of the matter is very good predators. The reason why they're so good is that they can hide themselves, you know, among their prey very easily. Right. So um, rather than say to a woman, well, you must surround yourself with, you know, with, with safe people, it's it's almost like when these women, you know, they, they've had to live in the world. Like I said, this is not, you know, unique to the hacker world that we have to deal with this stuff um, on the regular basis. It's really about, I think, telling the men out there that quite frankly, you, you know, all men know a friend who has been inappropriate and maybe not, maybe they don't know a friend who has committed rape, but they do know friends who, you know, have quote unquote gotten too drunk and gotten so, handsy. Right. You know what I mean? Just an and, asshole, right? Everybody's right. got this, that asshole friend, right? Right. So I think, I think rather than telling women like, Hey, you should surround yourselves with people that you hope you can trust. I think we should be telling men say, Hey, you all have that friend. Why don't you take that guy aside, especially before you get there and say, buddy, I've seen you act inappropriately when you're drunk. Just to, so you know, I'm going to be watching you. 
And just let those get, you know, men tell other men that, hey, I've noticed this behavior before and I'm not even going to let you do it. You know, I'm going to be watching you. We're going to be hanging out. You're still my friend, but you're going to be accountable to somebody other than, you know, whomever you you may worship, you know, when you're asking for forgiveness for these things. Right. I completely agree. I just it's so startling to me that I believe we're just now, you know, scraping the scab off of how real and how bad it really is. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because it doesn't matter really how, you know, how I'm dressed. I could literally be in a burlap sack and I can get catcalled, especially in Vegas, you know. So the whole idea that, you know, if we if we just stay in packs or if we dress like super conservatively that we'll somehow be spared that all that's a myth you know i think yeah i think the only thing that's really going to change it is you know with more men who who really do believe that you know we all have an equal right to be at a professional event um keeping their peers professional i think men need to to start policing other men all right i don't want to uh, and, and thank you for being as, as, as straightforward as, uh, as you've been. I know this is not, not an easy subject, one, and it's not, you shouldn't be the poster child for helping women deal with this, but it's such an important topic. I think we had to touch it. I want to switch gears a little bit because you've... Oh, you've, wait, before, before we jump off this one, just to, be, um, just to be clear, so I'm happy to answer the question, and since I'm your first podcast interviewee, the challenge for you is I would like for you to ask this question to the men as well. Like, what can you do? What, you know, what have you observed? How have you helped what can you do to help in the future because i think that way it's not just the women on your podcast who are being asked the same question you got to ask the men too so that's my request for you going forward i agree but and that's why i said i'm struggling with it because like i don't know if i'm being naive if i'm being i'm just not in the right places i'm just not with with that circle of friends and i'm talking to it with people that i go to black hat with like have you seen any of this stuff before do you see people pawing at people uh, and among my, you know, network of people who go to Black Hat together, we're having these conversations. But I completely agree with you. Men, men should, uh, I, I should be, and I will be asking these questions to to other guests as well, because I think it's an important conversation to have uh, and to get perspective from both sides as well. Awesome, thank you. You have branded yourself as the bug bounty mama uh, <laughs> through a lot of hard work and through a lot of um, major accomplishments. And I want us to talk a little bit about this because I don't think you get enough credit or even some credit uh, for some of the stuff you've done over the years. And, and we can start at Microsoft. You joined Microsoft in, I believe, 2007. At yep. the time, uh, this was pre-warm, no, this was post-warm era, post-blast or post-sasser. post yeah, post Blaster and Sasser, but pre WannaCry and Petcha not Petcha, right? So we're we're right. back in the age of the worms. But go on, yeah. Uh, and and at the time, Microsoft had this—I wouldn't say a terrible reputation, but they were kind of the pariah of the industry. Microsoft and security was kind of dirty words. They they had made a significant investment in 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 SDL and evangelizing SDL and trying to get people to understand about you know, secure coding and. Spent a lot of money in adding a firewall by default, turned on in XP Service Pack 2, then came Vista and everything else. Everyone knows the history. But a big part of that history as well is this uh, vulnerability research program at Microsoft, which uh, predated Google Project Zero and actually went out and looked for vulnerabilities in third-party non-Microsoft products. I remember Steve Manzuk had done some work there. You were yeah. a big part of, uh, of, you were a founder of that program. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what are some of the internal conversations that happened in Microsoft to get executives or to get people at the top to buy into that? So, was it um, hard? Was it a straightforward thing? <laughs> well, nothing at a mega corporation is ever straightforward. Um, but first, before we go into the Microsoft vulnerability research, I got to give props where props are due. And so I joined in 2007, um, but predating me and who really, really turned the mothership around when it came to dealing with hackers was a hacker herself, Window Snyder. And she had actually joined Microsoft and she had left already by the time I got there. But she was responsible for starting the Blue Hat Conference, which, Correct. as you know, Correct. was, Shout you know, Windows. Yeah, you absolutely. You had the greatest so, email address at Microsoft. It was window at Microsoft.com. <laughs> window at Microsoft, exactly. No, but window, yeah. So she started Blue Hat, um, and she, you know, in addition to being responsible for a lot of security, technical security work there, she started that in, you know, sort of her spare time. She also came up with the idea of throwing 
the hackers a party in Vegas, you know, which right. became one of the most exclusive, you know, and it actually started the trend of giant vendors yeah, throwing parties in Vegas. The researcher appreciation party, which became the black hat party to be at. Right, right. So that was all window and that predated my existence at Microsoft. So I got to give props where props are due and talking, especially when you said, you know, that I don't get credit for a lot of things. Well, window definitely doesn't get credit for what, what she should, which is really turning around hacker relations at Microsoft. Um, and I think that's important to note. You asked about Microsoft vulnerability research. So the, the phrase that I like to use about how to get things done at Microsoft or any other mega corporation or complex organization is never waste a good crisis, right? right. You never want to let a good crisis go by without um, providing some insight as to how you might avoid it and then potentially starting using that momentum to start new initiatives. So Microsoft Vulnerability Research was no exception to this. Um, what had happened was Dan Kaminsky had come in and he said, hey, uh, we've got this you know, big DNS vulnerability, um, need some help coordinating it. Um, Katie, I know you wrote the, the Vuln coordination policy for Symantec, your previous job. Can you help me you know, basically coordinate among all these different parties? So. That was the first, you know, essentially Microsoft-led multi-party vulnerability coordination event. Oh, was I remember that... it very, very well. Exactly, right? And so at that point, I wrote up um, and budgeted out for about a three-year program, which, you know, you kind of, uh, at Microsoft, you know, you budget out what you'll need next year, how you might grow the program in, in subsequent years, you know, because they don't want to commit to funding something and not know how that, you know, how that budget item might change over the next few years. So I did all this work and came up with this idea to look for vulnerabilities proactively in third-party software that affected Microsoft customers. Hence that whole precursor to Project Zero, which is, you know, effectively what they're doing right now. Um, and to do that, you know, I had to get approvals, but I was able to use the momentum of the Kaminsky coordination event and a couple of other events, you know, things where... Right. And that was a big industry win. I mean, at the right. time, that was perf it, it was it was not flawlessly executed, but it was a big win in terms of coordinating between multiple uh, affected vendors and really setting up a timeline for people to get updated and people to apply patches. And it, it, it involved so many part parties that... You wondered how you guys were able to pull this off. Right. And it was, yeah, exactly. And, you know, multi-vendor multi and multi-party vulnerability coordination is always going to be awkward at best, right? So the best thing you can do is, is just try and get everyone on the same page and give as much lead time as possible, which, you know, was, was the goal for that. But, yeah, so MSVR, you know, was, was basically, you know, this attempt to look at third-party vulnerabilities. And actually, I used data. Um, you know, I used the data of the bugs being reported to Microsoft to justify it, right? So um, back on uh, Windows XP, the majority of IE or browser-related vulnerabilities were in the browser itself, were in IE. And then moving on to Vista, the version of IE that shipped with Vista, you know, they had built in a lot more security into the operating system and into the browser. So then the majority of vulnerabilities were actually coming from third-party plugins. So think Adobe Flash and things like that. So I was able to show that data and show that flip of where the attacks were coming from and then say, look, if we actually start looking for vulnerabilities in third-party products, we can help our customers, you know, essentially not get popped. As we get better at our own security, we need to go out and make third parties better at their security as well. So that was how that was how uh, I did it. And then we um, did. Did we you hired, guys did you guys yeah. bring in third parties to help with that as well? We did bring in some third parties to you know to to help. And certainly, Steve Manzuk was a contractor who was working for me, um, basically running that program. Um, so he was a third party, and it was important to have somebody with his reputation, technical skills, and, you know, ability to just relate to people. He's right. a great Navigate guy. Navigate the industry, right? Yeah. And, you know, he would actually look for bugs as well. You know what I mean? So he was, you know, he was absolutely instrumental in that program actually executing successfully. I don't think we could have done it with somebody lesser, you know, than, than somebody like Steve Manzwick, you know, who has that great hacker history and that great personality, you know, absolutely. to be able to hang out with people and get things done and, and get bugs fixed. You know? What so happened with it? Would you say it was a, it was a success? Because uh, Google and Project Zero, it, you know, to kind of took the example, ran with it on, on, on 
vulnerabilities and, and, and software products affecting their ecosystem and they have this you know, very, very active team uh, pushing out software vulnerabilities. Tavis is killing it. Those guys are killing it. What, 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 did something go wrong with MSVR that it, it never really kind of... Well, I think, the, I think the, the thing is Microsoft was investing as it should in securing its own products very, very heavily. And it never really kind of felt like, you know, I remember when Chris Evans was building out Project Zero and he said, I've got 20 open headcount. And I was like, wow, I struggled to get, <laughs> you know, one and a half open headcount for, you know, for, for MSVR. But what we were doing for MSVR was we were actually, um, you know, taking and helping to coordinate bugs of any of the Microsoft employees. So you could be anybody and not, you know, working full time on discovering bugs and third party right, right. stuff. But you could be anybody and we would coordinate your bug. So we were kind of doing this like more grassroots organic thing um, while Microsoft was busy really trying to, to shore up its own security of its own software. Whereas Google took this approach of, look, we are invested, you know, fully in securing our own software. And since we sit on other operating systems for the most part, I mean, Chromium, you know, wasn't wasn't quite, um, you know, there yet in terms of, of, and it still isn't, you know, in terms of enterprises don't depend on it, you know, the same way they depend on Windows. So they basically, I think from the, from the Google perspective, they're looking at it like, look, we have to be able to secure some of this third party stuff in order to secure our customers. There's no choice, you know, whereas Microsoft, I think they were coming from it like, look, we own the platform and we have to, we have to uh, concentrate on that platform and anything else on top of that in terms of third party bugs will be security gravy, if that makes sense. Right. And, 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 I, and I guess the success of that was also a, a big impetus for uh, the Blue Hat Prize. Uh, which was kind of like the first bug bounty out of Microsoft, and that was the one for I don't remember what year it was, but it was basically buying exploit mitigations, not necessarily vulnerabilities or exploits, but uh, rewarding researchers who came up with these advanced ex exploit mitigations. That was also an easy sell for you to get management to buy into this idea. Well, I, you know, everything that I managed to pull off at Microsoft was always something where I was planning. It was it was staged planning for something else, right? So MSVR, um, you know, which we were just talking about, the research program, I was planning on making sure that Microsoft employees who discovered things could release advisories on third-party software. It was right. something that is important, right? So that was that was really, you know, part of that strategic plan. Um, and it's the, important for people to understand that at the time, that kind of stuff was somewhat frowned upon. Um, absolutely, it was frowned upon. I mean, honestly, Symantec vulnerability research, which I also started, was because Symantec at the time had no ability for its own employees who may have found bugs to disclose those vulnerabilities. Um, you know, literally, they were publishing advisories, but advisories for other people's bug finds, and they didn't have a bunch of hackers until they had at stake. So I created that program to to provide that outlet for us. And similarly, at MSVR, I wanted you know, long game, I wanted to be able to provide that outlet for Microsoft employees as well. So taking us to the Blue Hat Prize, which you just asked about, was that an easy sell? Actually, no. Um, it started as me looking into how to do bug bounties at Microsoft right. because what was happening, yeah, was happening was Google started offering bug bounties in early 2010, and you know my Microsoft chain of command said, "Hey, if we were to do so, what would that look like?" And so I came up with all of these different, you know, game theory proven, you know, all these like economic theory, game theory, all this stuff proven um, different ways to do bug bounties. And the whole time they were very resistant to this idea and they were resistant to it, not, not because they just didn't want to pay. It was because they were already receiving like a couple hundred thousand email <laughs> messages a year and they were like please god no let's let's not hurt ourselves even more so they couldn't they couldn't wrap their imaginations around paying for bugs they were a getting for free and b um, you know they couldn't really uh, see their way towards in you know enticing more vulnerability reports out of the world and so what i did was i flipped it around and i said what if we paid for defense what if we paid for a mitigation itself right and so that was how the Blue Hat Prize was born, was it was really, you know, kind of looking at ways that I could offer hackers money, 
um, in a totally legal and blessed by Microsoft way. And it turned out, you know, we actually offered, you know, the highest prize of anything that was going on. That was higher than, you know, that was higher than um, Pwn to Own at the time. You know, $200,000 was the top prize for the Blue Hat Prize. And that was definitely higher than Pwn to Own. So any of the defensive market prizes, we were higher. Um, and that was an interesting experiment. Um, oh. we, we, yeah, we found a lot of people, you know, we normally wouldn't have interacted with, like a lot of academics. Um that normally wouldn't be, you know, the the hacker bug hunting type. So we kind of identified new talent. And the other thing we realized was that it's actually really hard to build defenses that are practical in the world. And the reason why, um, if we fast forward to the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, there, the guy uh, who was at DARPA at the time, who's now ironically at Microsoft, um, Michael White, um, he he had a, or sorry, Michael Walker. Uh, there was a different Michael White at Microsoft, but <laughs> Michael Walker, Michael Walker, he met with me at, in Vegas, I think the year before they announced the challenge. And he said to me, what if we had AI that could find, you know, tens of thousands of vulnerabilities through artificial intelligence? And I said, well, you'll collapse every single vulnerability response organization in the world is what will happen because they can't keep up with that kind of volume. And he said, well, what if the AI also fixed things? And I said, well, I tried that, you know, with the uh, Blue Hat Prize, and it's actually very complicated to write a good fix that doesn't, A, either break app compat or B, um, you know, introduce performance hits that are unacceptable. And so he kind of took that feedback. I sent him the URLs for the Blue Hat Prize. And then actually, if you look at the performance um, criteria for um, for the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, it almost exactly matches the Blue Hat Prize yeah, criteria. Hat Prize, right. Yeah. So it ended up, you know, influencing that cool thing later. Um, which is good because, quite frankly, if they had only tried to solve for half of the equation, which is bug hunting, they would have <laughs> they would have unleashed some terrible AI upon the world. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, I want to get into bug bounties with you so badly. Uh, you I know. after Microsoft, with, you did the hacker one thing, kind of getting them set up with all their policies and getting that business built before moving on to launch your own company, which is. You know, consulting, helping organizations, governments, to hack, to hack the Pentagon, all that, uh, all that amazing stuff. But, but what, I, what I find really interesting in the bug bounty world is there are competing platforms, there are penetration testing companies that offer like some crowdsourcing model. And of course, it, there's a big sales and marketing component to bug bounty programs now, which now starts to drive me crazy. And I don't know if you, if you want to get into it. There's so much value in bug bounty programs that people need to pay attention to it. But positioning bug bounties and marketing bug bounties as kind of the be-all catch-all of what you should be doing for your security posture is just so asinine to me. And it's, it seems like the public platforms are getting away with this like Equifax you should have had a bug bounty program would have avoided Equifax just just bonkers to me how do we how do we as an industry push back and get CISOs and get organizations to understand that you know bug bounties are just one layer yeah that's a tough one so I mean here's the thing you know I, I don't know what the newest data on how long a CISO normally holds their job is. But I remember a few years back, the average lifespan of a CISO was 18 months. And the joke there is that they're not really there to be responsible for the information security of an organization. They're more there as a sacrificial lamb. So if you view it in that context, CISOs love the idea of bug bounties. They love this like super trendy, fast, alliterative, you know, thing that they can look at some very superficial marketing stats. They can look at, you know, the success of programs like Hack the Pentagon and the, you know, nice glossy PowerPoint with all the numbers on it. And they can say, look, I'm making a cost effective decision here by, you know, believing the marketing of, you know, a bug bounty service provider and just, you know, trying to, to find bugs this way. So, from the average CISO's perspective, yeah, sure, bug bounty makes great sense. They're not going to have to deal with the sustainability of it. And that's really the thing where as we're in a post-bug bounty, like, trendy world, I'm seeing a lot of people come to my company that are saying, yeah, so we've been running a bug bounty, and, and they usually go on with this, like, nightmare horror story of how it wasn't scoped correctly, they've had a lot of pain, growing pains, all kinds of things, and tons of things are avoidable. 
And a lot of them are thinking of closing it down and they don't know how to deal with that because they actually aren't getting the value out of it. Oh, it's real. I was involved in Kaspersky's uh, planning for and implementation of a bug bounty program. And, you know, you were there at SAS when we did our little update on on out-of-scope stuff, just... We thought we were prepared. You're never really fully prepared. And and just to go back to this, you know, CISOs are only there for 18 months. How is that? How is that an efficient way for an organization uh, to secure itself when 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 a CISO is just there as a, you know, stopgap? Yeah, I mean, I think that CISOs are really put in a tough position, right? The reason why they're only there for about 18 months is because everyone's going to get breached. If you know, if I mean, there, there's a joke, right? The outgoing CISO hands the in the new CISO three envelopes, and he says, you know, open these in order when you get breached the first three times, right? So the first one, you know, opens the letter and says, blame me, you know, okay. Second breach happens, opens the letter and says, okay, blame China, North Korea, like whoever, you know. Um, Third breach, the CISA opens the letter and it says, write three letters, right? So, I mean, the joke is that you're gonna get breached and these these roles are considered disposable um, because there's no real way to gauge whether or not they're actually doing their job well, because anyone can be breached, you right. know. And it sounds like um, a joke, but that's real. Yeah, it's real. It's real. The three-letter thing—it's not a joke, you know. Write three letters just immediately. But um, the fact of the matter is, like when when I look at you brought up Equifax, right? We we look at that, and it wasn't about the bug or knowing about the bug or not applying the patch fast enough, because I think it was about a sixty-day delay, and. Th- at least 30 of those days was waiting for Oracle, their vendor, to actually give them the fully tested patch. And then probably another 30 days trying to test the patch out in their own, you know, in their own systems. That wasn't the problem. The problem with Equifax wasn't knowledge about the bug and whether a bug bounty would have helped them or not. The problem was the fact that they didn't realize they were hacked and they didn't see all of their data marching out the front door. That was the problem, right? So, Yeah, looking at everything from a very like bug discovery approach, you know, bug centric, um, where it's all about, no, we have to find out about more bugs. Well, most organizations struggle prioritizing the bugs they already know about, you know, and Equifax is just one example of, you know, an organization that you can't just apply all the patches immediately. That's, you know, that's that's a fallacy that can only work in very low complexity, small organizations. In, in an organization where you've got, you know, a whole bunch of financial transactions going on or a whole bunch of other critical infrastructure type of things, you have to take your time testing those patches. And that's just a fact. So that's where other practices really come into play. And again, the bug bounty company, as much as, you know, they're doing a really good job of, marketing the fact that this is a you know this is a, a new crowdsourced way to find bugs most of them are not doing a good job of talking to you about like okay what do you do with all these bugs how do you actually use these bugs to improve your overall security posture or are you just playing whack a bug you know right. and, and finding not, yeah finding they're not more gonna, bugs than you can handle they're not going to turn away an organization by by honestly telling them you guys are clearly not prepared for this. And I guess right. this is where your consultancy come in. Are there are there examples or places you go in and you say to uh, someone considering whether they should go the bug bounty route to say, guys, you guys are not ready. You're six months away from being ready because you don't have these ten things in place yet. Is that a constant conversation you're having? Yeah, you know what's funny is that it happens. It happens maybe about 25% of the time because most of the organizations and governments that come to my company for help are actually coming because they know they need to build capacity for vulnerability disclosure. They know they actually have to do something with those bugs. And so even before they start thinking about like offering cash to find out about more bugs, they're looking at it from like a, okay, you know, we need to actually make sure we know what to do with our bugs, how to streamline our process. And, you know, whether we offer cash in the future, you know, that that's that's dependent on whether or not we can learn something new that we're not learning already from our vulnerability disclosure program. Because, I mean, if you look at it statistically, most organizations don't even have a vulnerability disclosure program. So 
I'd say it's maybe about like a quarter of my customers that are coming to me saying, I want to do a bounty and I want you to help help us design it. Um, it's more the, the process planners who are coming to me, like the UK government. Um, you know, they've done vulnerability disclosure before, of course. They've been finders. They've been receivers of vulnerability reports. But they wanted to formalize their process. And they wanted to make it so that it's easy for hackers from the outside to report a, a vulnerability to them and that they have a consistent experience. And they want to make sure that they're, you know, any of the response teams, because, you know, if you look at it, any government is going to have multiple different security response teams for different areas of their website and services, et cetera. They wanted to make sure that they knew what are the skills that our response teams need to have to be able to practice this consistently. And I think that is exactly where um, most mature organizations, if they realize that they need help, that's where they actually realize they need help. Yeah, even the triaging of the bugs coming in becomes a, a laborious process. Yeah, that's a common, that's one of the most common pain points. That's why actually I like partnering with BugCrowd because BugCrowd always got it that triage was one of the, basically triage is one of the worst jobs in security, right? It's it is. One no of one the, wants to do it. It's shitty work. Well, and, you know, once you get good at it, you want a different job. So they, rec <laughs> you know, they recognized this early and they basically were saying, look, we can we can work we can do the staffing of the triage we'll deal with training our triage people to make sure that it's consistent even when there's job turnover in that function and you guys don't have to worry about it where it starts to break down is in organizations that have complex hardware or software issues or have very long times to fix it's actually harder to justify outsourcing your triage when you know one, the average triage person maybe isn't going to understand your technology. Um, or two, you have such a long time to fix, you know, like Apple or Microsoft or whatnot. You don't want third-party triage people who you don't know knowing about those bugs because they're going to live for a long, long time, probably long past that person actually works in a triage role. So those folks typically want to keep their triage in-house, if that makes sense. It does, it does. And it's complicated because it, it varies from vendor to vendor, from, from company to company. I, I, I had an, an IoT vendor shipping a small device. Like, how do you get those devices into the hands of a bug bounty program? Or, or how, does a, how does a finder invest a, uh, $500 in a product to get a $50 bounty? These are like real complications to this entire industry. And that's why it drives me crazy that, you know, bug bounty guys say, go into startups and say, you know, you guys need a bug bounty program, when in fact they're not equipped yet to deal with a bug bounty program or, or, or some of the chaos that goes on in the background. Yeah, and you've actually hit on one of the biggest problems with the um, quote-unquote high-end bug bounty um, realm. So when you look at companies like Synac, where their whole thing was they were advertising that, oh, we've got highly skilled, we vetted them for skills, and we vetted them for trustworthiness and all this stuff. You know, they can have clearances if you want them to. People like that don't need bug bounties, you know? That would, it's literally like a waste of their time to gamble, right? They can have full-time contracts where they are making guaranteed money and they don't have to be competing against other bug hunters Absolutely. and they don't yeah and they don't you know they don't need all that hassle so you know that the quote-unquote high-end bug bounty uh, realm i think is fundamentally you know it, it's a very difficult model to execute and actually a lot of the stuff that you know bug bounties that that i've helped set up in the past um they required me to basically go and hand tap people who I knew had the skills to go Please ahead take and sign a look up. At this. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And, and like I know, I know, I did it for Kaspersky's bug bounty <laughs> when you guys first started. I was like hand tapping people to get them to sign up because you know you're not looking for regular web web app vulnerabilities, which those platforms have tons of web app pen testers. It's the higher skilled uh, folks that often you know it, it requires a special invitation, and even then. They're not necessarily going to look at much more than that one thing that you ask them, you know, right. as a favor to look at, right? Uh, one of the dirty secrets, and I don't, I'm not pouring cold water on the bug bounty companies. I think they, they, they serve a valuable purpose. There's a place for them in it. But one of the dirty secrets is, they, again, I, I come back to the marketing of it. We have thousands and thousands of researchers available to look at your product. The reality, it's just a, it's, it's maybe a hundred active guys 
and that's, out of that, yep. yeah, and you're not you're not getting five thousand vulnerability researchers looking at your product like 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 has been promised. There's one hundred active guys, or let's say three hundred active guys. Out of that, out of those three hundred active guys, you got to give them a, a black hot party invite to really prod them to go look at certain things, to sign up, the, the same thing you just mentioned. There, there's so much behind the scenes that uh, companies don't quite understand, and especially for startups. I think it's, it's it's especially tough for startups struggling to make sure they're taking security seriously and, and opting for bug bounties over, you know, wider assessments. And, and it, it's really interesting to see how people balance these decisions. For me, as an outsider just looking in, it's really interesting to watch. Well, yeah, and, you know, to your point about the active active users on those platforms and more importantly skilled active users Correct. right there are plenty of active users who are happy to spam and try their luck you know we call them beg bounty right you know they'll spam they'll spam all the bounty programs with sort of some you know not really validated scanner tool findings and they will they will beg for bounties all over the place. And out of those active ones, out of that one hundred and the few active ones, how many of them have already have a full time job and bug bounty is just a moonlighting thing? That's not a real issue. Yeah, I mean there are very few who do it full time, um, but the ones who do it full time, you know, they concentrate on just a very few number of programs. So. I think you know you were there uh, when I did the RSA talk with the MIT Sloan, um, you know, folks mm -hmm. on the wolves of Wall Street, right? So that was one element that we we covered where we did a system dynamics model of the vulnerability and exploit market. Another element that we looked at, and this is actually coming out in an MIT Press book as a chapter in the book, one of the papers that you know never got published in another format. It actually looked at the supply of those skilled eyes. So I'll, I'll give you the spoiler, you know, Redux version. It's of the people who on the bug bounty platforms who um, were able to find vulnerabilities, at least one, you know, there's 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 a cut there, you know, and then of those people who at least found one vulnerability, how many found more than one? The majority were one-hit wonders, so that, that tells you something. And then of those people who find more than one vulnerability and kind of stay active in the platform, how many different programs do they participate in? And the answer was on average less than two. So it's basically they concentrate on one, they might dabble in another, but pretty much once they find a cash cow, those very, very highly skilled hacker eyes on those platforms, they tend to just stick. a handful. Yeah, they just tend to sit because why would they bother? You know, why would they bother learning, you know, a new uh, a new target, essentially, especially when that target, when they start on the platform, tends to get flooded with a whole bunch of eyes looking for that low hanging fruit. So it's like the, the highly skilled bug hunters, they tend to, you know, hone in on a project or two. And you'll see this, you know, um, Mark Litchfield is one of the early, you know, highly prolific, highly skilled bug hunters. Again, this is all Yacht State doing Mafia. Doing his thing in Vegas. Doing his thing yeah. in Vegas, you know, and he's doing bug bounty hunting full time. And he was a very early adopter of both the major platforms. But he hones in on just a couple of the different programs like Yahoo he pays him a whole lot of money. Um, and he maybe works on, you know, just a few other, or like one or two others. Yeah, he's a but perfect example. I'm glad you raised his, I'm glad you brought up his name because he's a perfect example of this top right. tier, handful of top tier guys focused on things. And when when people buy into a bug bounty program expecting they'll get Mark or expecting they'll get someone of that vintage poking at their products, it's, it's a non-starter. That's exactly right. Yeah, there are only so many Mark Litchfields to go around, you know what I mean? And, and they, you know, he's a very smart and savvy bug hunter and businessman. He's going to go after the things that are most lucrative to him. And, you know, that's going to be the code base he knows the best, the security team that he's worked with in terms of getting his bugs resolved and his bounties paid. There's no reason for him to branch out to, you know, random bug bounty of tiny startup X, right? right. And that's, and that's a real conversation to have that's not happening in the industry. And I'm glad you're willing to at least poke some of the holes that drives me crazy. Right. How is Luta security doing? I mean, we can talk about this forever. We can talk about cost transfers and all the other stuff that, that companies need to deal with. But I know you've done enough talks on it. I want to get to your new company. How is Luta doing? Well, Luta is doing great. Um, and I say this, you know, with the, with the pride and fear of the mother of a company, <laughs> right? You know, it's it's like start out on your own. It'll be great, they said, you know. Um, but no, it's, the thing is, 
Um, most startups, especially in security that have no VC backing, most of them will die very quickly. And I'm, I'm very happy to say, um, you know, where we've passed the year and a half mark, still no VC backing, still alive and still getting new clients. So, I mean, in this full disclosure, bug bounty space, Luta Security is the only company that has opened up a new government to vuln disclosure, um, you know, processes uh, in a formal way, and that would be the UK Gov. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, the only company that has consulted with a national cert on improving their their vulnerability coordination processes that they've been doing for you know over 25 years, and that would be JP Cert is one of my customers as well. Wow. So, I mean, in terms of how are we doing? Doing great. Where are we going from here? Well, you'll just have to see what 2018 brings, but I've got a lot of different plans that don't involve me flying around everywhere when I want to make a buck. So it should be pretty good. I'm pretty excited about it. You're preempting me because I'm so proud of you because more more importantly, I don't know how you do it. Your schedule gives me a rush. (laughs) Um, Your travel schedule, your speaking schedule on top of trying to run a startup, just it's just insane to me. Well, you know, chronic insomnia really helps, number one. Um, It's not sustainable, though, Katie. You know that. Well, you know what's funny is I've had this insomnia for, I don't know, probably like in this form, like this hyper form, I've had it actually since both my parents passed away. So I think it was one of those things where grief, you know, transmuted into perpetual motion. And then I just never lost the habit of the perpetual motion, right. if that makes sense. I mean, it's it's more real than real, I yeah. can tell you. I, can, I, I know you're ignoring me. That stuff is not sustainable. I don't know how it's sustainable on your travel schedule. I mean, it's just insane. I'm very proud of you. I'm obviously rooting for you, watching the company. Of course, anything we can do to help. Always no, I help. mean... Absolutely. I, look, you're right that it's not it's not sustainable. Also, you know, to have me the center of the expertise for my company. So that that is one area that I can talk about. You know, where where I'm planning on expanding um, focus of people who can perform. You know, some of these maturity model assessments that I do for my clients and building out their roadmap. And that's basically where I'll be taking on um, other full time consultants, but I'll also be you know willing to license out the method to other consulting houses because I get a lot of this where you know the Deloitte's of the world or whatnot want to you know they're getting asked by their clients to structure a bug bounty program and they don't know how to do it and rather than you know have it just be me subcontracting all the time I think it makes sense for me to go ahead and license that methodology so that people can one not make up a service that is just wrong and bad you know and two that you know that that there's a way for me to share some of this methodology um, especially since people's customers are asking for it so on that front, you know, on on the the consulting side, I do plan on expanding, but there are other expansions that Luta Security is planning for next year as well, and I will definitely let you know when I'm ready to talk about those. Thank you very much, Katie. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.